Now, our next session uh, is all about how mission contributes to the ecosystem. Uh, we have three presenters. Uh, Graham Fuller is the mission and maturity pastor here at EV. Adrian Haynes is on the mission team here at EV. And Sam Hilton is the mission pastor at Hunter Bible Church, just up there. Um, it, look, it could be, we thought it could be a little bit confusing for, uh, for you because later on we're going to have Q&A and you'll be able to ask questions through the app or live with a microphone. So we colour-coded the presenters, okay? Here we go. Uh, Graham uh, will be wearing white and Adrian will be wearing black and Sam will be wearing red. Got that? Do you want me to repeat it? No? Okay. All right. So let me hand over to our three presenters. Come on, show them some love. Uh, glad we didn't all just dress in black. Um, thanks, Tony. Uh, fantastic to um, hear the, the theological truths that we're trying to apply, and we need to keep those things before us all the time. Uh, we want to make deep disciples, deep disciples uh, from the Word, uh, by the preaching, but also churches that have that one-to-one, -one, that one-another work going on as people speak the Word into each other's lives in all sorts of contexts. Now, the big thing we're trying to do in these practical sessions is ask, what is the key to effective mission in your church? How can we reach Australia? And yesterday's answer to that question was, we need a healthy church ecosystem. And so we've been looking at that diagram, the Pentagon of Power, uh, which is fantastic. And it shows the, the key dimensions that every church needs if it's going to be a healthy disciple-making uh, place, community, and if it's going to be a, a community that is effectively on mission. Um, now, you might be looking at that and think, oh, I think there's, there's other dimensions. I think there's things that I'd add to that. That's, that's fine. Make it a six-sided thing, which is a hexagon or a seven-sided. You, you, you might think there's more dimensions or less dimensions. Study the scriptures. They're really headings under which to you place the key things that you think God wants for his church and God wants for each disciple. So yours might differ slightly, but what we found as we've talked to churches all over the place, generally it's pretty much these sort of five big headings or these five big baskets. And the more you have, uh, the less you have to group under each heading, and the less you have, the more you have to group under each heading, if that makes uh, sense. Now, this is really critical, as we've talked about, for the mission ecosystem to function well. Let me give you one example. Uh, the corporate side of things, the community, the care side of things. Imagine for a moment that that is tanking in your church. It just isn't happening. That dimension really doesn't exist. Now imagine you're a non-Christian, you turn up and you walk into that church. What is your experience? No one welcomes you. No one really ever notices you. No one tries to connect you and integrate you into relationships with other people so that you can get to know them and feel warmly welcomed. In fact, when you look around, what you notice is people are just there doing a thing and then running off and going home. There's no real love. There's no real community. There's no real connection. If you're a non-Christian and you come in and you see that going on in a church, you're not coming back, are you? You're not coming back. And if there's not real connection and love and care, the, the one another speaking the truth to one another in love and encouraging each other to be on mission, fueling each other for mission, also isn't happening. Practically on the ground, the, a healthy church ecosystem is absolutely essential. Now, what do you need to, to make that happen? Well, it's fairly obvious, but what you need is focused energy and attention to each dimension. 
The senior minister is not pulling off all these aspects of church life. It's just not possible. It's not feasible. And so you need to set aside people to achieve the different dimensions of church life and bring that to bear in, a, in an ecosystem which all relates together. Now, you hear me saying that and you think, oh, it's all right for you, you just pay people and they do that. No, no, this is scalable. You can do this from the very first to the very largest. At first, what happens is you're the senior minister who looks over the whole. You take two of the dimensions and you give three dimensions to volunteers. As things move forward, what you then do is you bring on a staff member and you oversee the whole, oversee one dimension, the staff oversees three dimensions and volunteer does the, is there one left? The one that's left. Over time, they're all staff by staff, which means there's more hours, they go deeper, they improve, they go better. But the key principle is dedicated, focused, energy, attention, depth, which brings expertise and excellence over time because you work out what works and you get rid of what doesn't work and you keep improving and we all do that as we learn from one another. Now that's the first key thing I'm just reiterating yesterday. A healthy church ecosystem is absolutely essential for effectiveness in gospel mission. Second key thing however is having a mission dimension or mission purpose that injects key things into the ecosystem which is that mission arrow that's coming in. Uh, someone set aside to champion and lead mission, fueling mission in the whole of the ecosystem. Now again, it can be a volunteer. A volunteer who then builds teams of volunteers under them. Now what is it that that mission purpose or mission dimension is bringing to the church to build an effective mission ecosystem? Well in your books, you've got uh, a little and, and look, at it's worth looking at. You've got a page there with four key headings and ten principles. And I think they're particularly uh, helpful. Can I say the principles are not constrained under the headings? They actually, each principle often achieves things under other headings. The principles overlap. It's particularly organic because they're principles. Often when you're trying to set up and apply something in church life, you're achieving three principles simultaneously. Rarely do they happen on their own. Um, but the principles are helpful because they're principles. You can scale them to any size. The application is going to change for your church. Every church will apply them differently but the principle still remains the same. So today what we're going to do is we're going to work through the principles under the heading, working with our people and working to shape church. Six principles. Tomorrow we're going to deal with three principles under the heading of working with outsiders. Can you see them there? So, first heading, working with our people, church members. Uh, first heading, first principle is conviction forming. Now, we've spent a lot of time on this throughout the conference, so I'm going to uh, move fairly quickly through this section. But the big thing you'll notice is mission heat tends to be the thing that is lacking in most of our churches, a zeal, a passion for reaching the lost, uh, a broken heart that God's name is not honoured by all people. And so we need to be churches that are building deep conviction in our members, people who are convinced, moved, captured by, driven by the truths of Scripture. Now, that's for all behaviours in the Christian life, but mission as well. As Herdy said, it's the want of mission rather than just the ought of mission. And so what we need is that to work through every layer of church, has already been said, through the senior minister, 
through the leadership team, whether that's paid or unpaid, down through every growth group leader, Bible study leader, ministry team leader, so that every person knows, while I might be running the sound desk ministry and I have a unique part to play in church, my deep passion is that I lead this team doing this so that people might be saved and so that Christians might grow to deep discipleship uh, in Jesus. And the mission purpose dimension keeps working with the senior minister, with the senior leadership team, with every leader in church to keep fueling. We must be on mission. See the gospel convictions that should drive us. Now, how is it that we fuel and form gospel convictions across our church? Well, I've got six key points there that we'll move through very quickly. Uh, The first is that the Word of God is the thing that creates gospel conviction, which we've heard again and again, and we need to underline, highlight, headline all the time which reminds us that the deep in the word purpose in church life is foundational, essential, our lifeblood, because that's what fuels convictions, all sorts of convictions, but deep gospel mission convictions across church. We need a healthy mission ecosystem. We've also heard over the last few days that preaching is absolutely essential, but not just any sort of preaching, preaching that is passionate, urgent, zealous, driven, And preaching that keeps, while it is uh, explaining and applying the text, aligning our horizon with the Bible author's horizon. Keeps shaping our worldview so that we see the world the way that God sees the world. That keeps reminding us our worldview has been shaped way too often by sight and not by faith, by the world around us and not by the word of God. And what we need to keep doing is preaching in a way that keeps aligning our horizon so that I see the world the way the Apostle Paul sees the world. Because that's the way God sees the world. I'll see spiritual realities. As that happens, what we find is we get clear vision. Clear vision comes from the scriptures. If you're in churches in the 90s, we all went away and we wrote mission statements and we wrote vision statements and we couldn't work out which was which, but we got them together and then nothing happened. Very little changed. Now, it's good to be clear about what you're doing, but the thing that really makes a difference in terms of mission and vision is having the the biblical vision consistently and constantly before our eyes that we see God's way of seeing the world. That fuels the convictions in our heart. That drives the people in our churches. The Bible is like spiritual glasses that help us see reality as it truly is. And when you see that, you see eternal realities, spiritual realities, where we're going together. That's clarity of vision. And when we all move forward as churches in lockstep towards that vision, that's that's a powerful thing. It's an army moving forward together. Three, what sort of spiritual and eternal realities do people need to see? There's a day of judgment. There's a real heaven, there's a real hell. If our people in all our churches could grasp that reality, really deeply believe that reality, that Jesus doing all sorts of wonderful good things, healing, raising the dead, turned away from that and went to the cross to die for people's salvation, that is the ultimate priority. If people we're deeply convinced and convicted by that. That God's glory is uttermost in his desires. That he will not let his name be profaned. If we had God's glory uttermost in our desires and could not stand that people lived in rebellion and did not honour him, but wanted them to be saved that they might live in honour of him as we have been saved and try to. Life is short. It's almost over. It's a fleeting breath. How will you live these few short days with eternity that is coming? to reach and to save the lost. If these sort of things were filtering down into our churches through our preaching, those sort of convictions, imagine the sort of churches that we would have. 
for. Once you've got this word-fueled vision and conviction work in place, mission and vision statements are very helpful. We've got a mission statement, which is to make deep disciples in ever-increasing numbers. Now, I think it's very simple because it's just from the Bible, isn't it? Deep disciples, ever-increasing numbers. Maturity, mission, flip it around, get, grow. That's what we're on about. But it's not saying that again and again and telling people that and sticking it on the wall that makes the big difference in church. No, no, it's the preached and led and proclaimed word that keeps painting a biblical vision, spiritual realities for people's eyes. When they hear that mission statement with clarity, it, it, it resonates. It fuels something deep inside and drives them forward. It's also great because you can stick it over every um, strategic plan you make and every outcome that you're trying to achieve is at achieving those outcomes. Deep disciples in ever-increasing numbers. A, a, a vision statement. Reach Australia has a vision statement. We as a church, Herdy said last night, have a, have a vision statement. But again, vision statements are really helpful if they're concrete, if you can see them. That's what vision, if you could see, imagine that. I can see it in my mind's eye, that they feel audacious and big, but they feel like, but if we rallied, we really could, we could do something towards that. They inspire people, but even more, if you're dropping them to the context where people's biblical convictions have been fueled, it resonates with their convictions and it makes them pop. They want to be a part of that. Five, vivid illustrations are powerful. As we're preaching the word, as we're sharing the word in different contexts and fueling people's convictions, one thing that can be particularly helpful is vivid illustrations, not too often used, but reasonably frequently used, which capture some of the things that we're talking about. Now, you can probably think of heaps, but in our church, we have ones that are particularly helpful, things like, I'm a local missionary. Now, you think about what a missionary does when they go overseas. You can dream up an illustration about what it means to be a hometown missionary. That's a powerful illustration, resonating, fueling convictions. Uh, heard he's used it before. The, um, everyone has a disease. Imagine everyone in our country has a, a, a disease. Everyone is dying. What, the World Health, Health Organization has come up with a cure. What, when would you feel we were breaking the back of it? You know, when 10% have the cure? We're 30%, we're 50%. No, we, we can't be content. Illustration, and you'll hear it a number of times because it fuels convictions. The lifeboat illustration, you might have heard that one. It's, it's from William Booth originally, I guess. Um, yeah, people are drowning in the ocean. People are going to hell and we're out there in lifeboats with the gospel reaching out pulling people into the lifeboat, which is the church, so that they might be saved, and then they might join us to reach out and pull others into the lifeboat so that they might be saved, which means there's going to be constant activity. It's going to be uncomfortable in the lifeboat. There's going to be new people joining us all the time. There are going to be uncomfortable people who don't really understand Christian things, and we're never going to... It's not a cruise ship. We're not sitting around, drinking nice drinks, eating nice foods, getting really fat and you know, just enjoying being with friends. No, there's a desperate mission. We're going to keep growing for the gospel. We're going to keep reaching out. We're going to... Now, you tell people that on your membership night, first night people come. They know what sort of church they're getting into, don't they? Creating gospel conviction. And sixth, I won't go into it, but the church is a real flagship event, particularly the preaching 
that forms gospel conviction in people. And so we need to shape all of church so that it is fueling gospel conviction because if it's failing to happen there, it's hard to make it take place through all the other contexts that we're fueling as well. Now, Adrian's going to jump up and give us the confidence-building principle. Uh, Sam's going to jump up later. Um, Adrian and Sam, as far as I'm aware, these are the two guys who have spent the most intense time in doing mission-focused work in churches. They've been doing it for a decade each. Uh, these guys are experts. So. That's nice for you to say. <laughs> the truth is... As a teaching aid, the organisers thought it'd be fun to get the, the least confident public speaker to, to emphasise the importance of confidence. Um, uh, now, building confidence. Uh, yeah, it's closely, uh, it closely runs behind the need for us to build conviction. Uh, but we're building confidence in two things. Uh, confidence that the gospel works and confidence that our church gospel activities work. Now, most of our people would say that they have a conviction that people need to hear about Jesus uh, so they can be saved and so God can be glorified. Uh, they think they should be active and intentional in evangelism, uh, but they aren't, so they feel guilty. Somewhere between believing God saved them and them needing to be the ones who open their mouths to speak, uh, something flicks uh, and they, they stop trusting that it's the word of God that's going to save and they start thinking it's something to do with them. Ask anyone in your church what's slowing them down in this area and I reckon the answer would be something like uh, they're afraid that they will not know what to say and that they're going to lose that relationship. Uh, so in that very common answer, they've shown you two things. Uh, they don't think they're good enough for God to use them and they assume the gospel isn't going to work. Uh, their friend isn't going to be saved uh, and they're going to lose that relationship that they care about. But our message isn't a sales pitch uh, for some dodgy product people don't need uh, and we're not salesmen. The gospel is the power of God to save uh, our people need to be shown and reminded of that truth uh, strongly and often. Uh, now, tied up with our people's confidence in the gospel, uh, that the gospel will work, is, is confidence that our gospel activities at church will work as well, particularly the conversion engine, which Sam's going to uh, bring our attention a little bit later. Uh, but for large groups of people in our churches, uh, just inviting to church events is going to be how they take their first steps into the shallow end of evangelism. And for a huge portion of our church, that's as far as they'll ever get. Ever get. Uh, now, that's why it's good to have things to invite people to, uh, but rightly and wrongly, if, for rightly or wrong reasons, if people are scared, uh, people are scared uh, to put their friends in situations where they won't feel comfortable. They'll worry that church events will, won't be sensitive and accessible to the outsiders. It'll be an unhelpful thing for their friend to get along to. Uh, people will rarely invite to anything that they do not have confidence in. Uh, if they do, uh, and uh, the thing that they invite to isn't good, they will never make that mistake again. Uh, they will remember that when church says, this will be good, invite to it, that they're lying, and that they should not do that. Uh, 
if something, if we say something is going to be good, we need to make work really hard to make sure it is. Because if we don't, what we end up doing is burning our, our best people, the people who have invited someone and have, uh, you know, the relationship with someone to actually bring them along. So building confidence, uh, building confidence in the gospel uh, that it will work and building confidence in the structures that you've got at church, that your gospel activities, uh, it's entwined how we build these confidences. Uh, we do both simultaneously and it needs to be come from a bunch of different angles, I think. Uh, now, what I'm going to spend the next little bit of my time on is taking us through a bunch of those angles that are helpful for us to be doing. Uh, but number one, uh, what is key and needs to be in your preaching. Um, wherever possible, we need to be showing the gospel is powerful to save uh, and how the scriptures are true and can stand up to any other worldviews out there that might disagree with it. Next, uh, people need to hear regularly that ordinary people like them who God can use to do his work to say something, to invite someone along, and out of that, people have become Christians. So in this, I think people's confidence in speaking catches up with what they already believe somewhere in them. God does use normal, everyday people to do his work. Uh, I don't think we get big wins in confidence when we point out that Andrew Heard spoke to someone about Jesus. They, they, I think what would be like, yeah, figured that. Surprise, surprise, and let me guess, it went well. <laughs> it's the, what we want to do is hold it up, the, the ordinary person who's taking steps to talk to people and how God is using that in his work. And when it comes to our church structures, I think it's easy for us to quite often be lazy and just say something is good enough, but that's not how we build confidence. Uh, good events create confidence. Uh, what that means uh, will be shaped by your context and culture. Uh, but what it, what it definitely means is that we need to pay attention to things like the quality of presentation, uh, how questions are answered, uh, food, vibe, music, venue, all the things that we kind of wish we didn't have to worry about, but because the culture and the people that we're reaching out to do care about these things, so also we need to worry about those things. As we work hard to see people converted, we need to use that energy and excitement to drive the structures that we've been creating and bring an energy to the whole ecosystem of church. So wherever appropriate, we need to feed back, share numbers of uh, the amount of people who are in, in investigating Jesus with you at the moment, professions of faith and conversions. Uh, we need to be sharing individual stories of people being saved uh, through interviews or videos, whatever that's going to look like, uh, in church or in groups, any other platforms you might have on your websites. Uh, now, and, and in that, you include who invited them, uh, how they got invited. You emphasise just how normal and average the convos and the invite was uh, that God used. Uh, and we include the parts of our church structures uh, that they came to and what they found helpful there. Now, in that, I reckon you need to be uh, somewhat careful about jumping the gun too early. It is very awkward if you get someone up and say, this is how they became a Christian, and two weeks later, they're no longer following Jesus. So wait 
an appropriate amount of time so you know they're solid in their faith and they're also able to express much clearer uh, what has happened for them. Now lastly, uh, I think you need to sell the vision of the church, uh, how all these events and structures and groups and series that we put on are helpful for our people to reach out to their community and their friends. Uh, we so often keep the hood shut, I think, on our churches, the planning, the organisation. Um, we put on events, we put on series, put on structures, and we just say, invite, 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 it'll be good, it'll be good, and it'll be good. It's always, like, it's just the same thing. It's really uninspiring. You just feel bad because you, you didn't invite again, you didn't invite again. I don't think that's inspiring at all. How stoked would your church be if you were able to hold up to them? This is the plan, a thought-out plan behind everything you're doing and how all those pieces work together to helpfully... Uh, bring people closer to investigating Jesus and being converted. And even, um, I think we mentioned yesterday, what, and what would be the next piece we put in if church, when church has more resource? That's what, church, that's what your people want, a church who's thought out and planned and, and aren't just firing off bullets into the space there. Um, now, uh, in doing that, and I'll finish on this, what you're going to do for your people uh, is help them see how important their part is in that whole structure. Get on board with that. Oh, like those amazing things, those smart things, those good things, they'll be empty uh, without us talking, without us inviting. Uh, and they'll see how important it is to be in ministry in those things and being active in evangelism. Thank you. You can see how helpfully um, Adrian thinks into the mind of our people and what's going on for them and, um, yeah, very, very helpful. So first two principles of working with our people, um, conviction forming, confidence building. Thirdly, competency uh, training. Now, when church leaders, I think, think about creating a church that's effective in evangelism, I think this tends to be the first thing they think of. We've got to train our people and that's going to make all the difference. Um, can I say, we actually think this is probably the least and the last of the principles to ruffle feathers. Um, it's it's um, demonstrably not the case that if you train everyone really well, there's going to be heaps of evangelism going on in your church and lots of people will be converted. And I think people underestimate conviction and underestimate confidence and overestimate uh, competency. And so I would give the least amount of time and the last, but having said that, it is important and so it is one of the principles that we have here. And so training our people to have the skills to effectively engage with friends, family, colleagues, acquaintances, the people they meet, um, is particularly important. And there's some wonderful resources um, around the place. Matthias have wonderful resources. But it's things like things we'd be familiar with. How, how do you help your people have conversations that introduce Christian things? How do you help your people um, turn conversations to Jesus? How do you get them so they can share their testimony helpfully? How do you get them so that they're able to answer tough questions? Um, learning a gospel outline like two ways to live, particularly helpful for their own thinking and framework, but so they have confidence in conversations and if the conversations turns to the gospel, they can say helpful and intelligible things. Um, and so it is a particularly a, a good area to train in. Remember though that preaching trains, the way that you preach will equip people for the sort of conversations they can have. And um, 
your evangelistic course also trains. It models a whole bunch of things in the way you engage with non-Christians and answer questions and the sort of answers you'd give. So Christians going to your evangelistic course um, can be a particularly helpful thing. Now, we've got a bit of a, a diagram to see how all this um, fits together. Um, and everything's a work in progress, so feel free to give suggestions. Um, the triangle is all our church members. Everyone exists in there somewhere, but people are at different points. You can see some church members are at H. They have no conviction, they have no confidence, and they have no competency. And so we need to do some work with them. But there are others, not many, who are at A, right at the centre of the Venn diagram. They, they, they have it all. They're awesome. <laughs> they have deep conviction. They have deep confidence in the gospel and in all that we're doing as a church for the cause of the gospel. And they're really competent. They're trained up to the hilt. They're, they're locked and loaded. They're ready to go. They're going to be doing awesome stuff. Now, wouldn't it be awesome if we could get everyone there? You won't. You, you, you won't get everyone there. It's our aim. It's our goal to be moving everyone there. But you won't. And I think it's for three reasons. One is maturity. Uh, you, you won't be able to mature. In fact, you shouldn't mature everyone to the point that they're all there because your church should constantly be reaching people and new people coming in. And if everyone's being matured right towards the centre, you've got a massively big problem. You, you should have always have a spectrum of people in your church that you're moving and maturing towards uh, the centre. Second thing is gifting. People do have different gifts and different abilities, and that does affect things. And third thing is we live in a broken world, and people have frailties, and those frailties are real, and they affect the way that people are able to um, do and hold these convictions and confidences. You just think about people with different mental illness things going on, and all those things um, uh, uh, you know, come to bear. But what we're seeking to do is bring the three key principles to bear, conviction forming, confidence building, competency training to all our people in a sophisticated way so that all of them are moving forward, moving forward, moving forward, moving forward um, to, to get towards A. And many won't reach there, and that's okay, but we want to keep encouraging people to, to keep moving forward. Now, you can see from the way that we've ordered the, the letters, there's a bit of a hierarchy. We've placed... Conviction forming first, confidence second, and competency third. Because B, the person with conviction and confidence, man, if they're, they're driven by you know, the conviction of Scripture, by the truths of Scripture, and they have confidence that the gospel works and the things that we're doing for the gospel are awesome, they'll find a way. <laughs> they don't need to be trained. They'll, they'll find a way. In fact, they'll seek out training eventually. Um, and so you can see um, that, that hierarchy played out there. We're going to take a two-minute moment to think about one step forward. Working with the people of our church, what is one thing that you identify that you want to do better in your church? So chat with someone next to you, chat with your team member, two minutes, write something down, one step forward for your church in this area. Okay, we might come back, it's probably not two minutes, sorry about that. Let's move into the second heading, which is working to shape church. And again, there's three key principles we believe under this heading. And the first key principle in working to shape church is uh, context understanding. 
Every one of our churches exists in a unique and different context, which is why you can't just cookie-cutter things. We've got to think about where we are. Uh, It's essential for us to be effective in mission. You live in a region, it speaks a certain language or multiple languages, will be inhabited by certain people groups, certain uh, cultures, subcultures, certain norms, certain socioeconomic realities, and it's going to be different for all of us. And these things all need to be taken into account which they would be if you're a missionary going somewhere. And they almost always are if you're a church planter going somewhere. But often if you're an existing church, you forget to be like the missionary or the church planter and think about what is this context in which I'm conducting my ministry? Is the ministry actually effectively reaching the people of the context here? And the thing is, we might have thought about that once upon a time, but things move on, culture moves on, society moves on, our area changes over time. Uh, Immigration, gentrification, people from different areas moving, cultural norms change. Our society's way of thinking is vastly different than it was even 10 years ago. And so as churches, we need to stay abreast of these changes and to adjust accordingly. Again, as with each of the principles, the mission dimensional purpose of of church life can can keep speaking into these things, keep watching these things and keep making sure that we're not losing track. There's two contexts. One is the broader context that we need to pay attention to. Uh, What is the broader context in which all our churches actually exist? Uh, In our country, in our part of the world? Some things to consider. Are we Eastern in thought? Are we Western in thought? What is our cultural tradition? What does it mean living as an Australian for how we think, for the worldview that we hold, for the, the, the values that are dear to our people? Uh, what are their aspirations? What are their goals? What does it mean to be a member of the online community in our part of the world? Thought trends, social media trends and moral values, uh, social media sentiment, YouTube messaging, movie streaming trends. I think we could look back over the last five years of Netflix and in 10 years and, and we will go, it is radically transformed the way our society thinks, Netflix. Uh, Things are changing rapidly all the time and we need to see it and understand it and be abreast of it. Understanding the broader context. But even more, we also need to understand the narrow context. And understand the broader context, one of the great things is there's lots of great commentators speaking about these things. Experts in the field who are analysing cultural trends. Christians who have great insight into these things. We don't need to work it out all themselves. We can leverage off what others are doing and make use of that. But narrower is what's your particular context. Firstly, what what is the area or region that you are seeking to reach with the gospel? And it's going to be different size for all of us. If you're in an urban context, um, densely packed and populated, it's going to be a much smaller region that you're trying to reach than if you're a suburban context or a regional context. If you're in a country context, much larger. If you're in an outback context, it's a huge area that you're trying to reach. And then you look at your area and you try to work out, well, what are the distinctives of this particular region or area? Demographics. What's the age? What's the race? What's the religion breakup? Socioeconomic education. What does it mean for this particular context for how people think? how people interact, what they do for work, what they do with their free time, uh, what social community leisure activities do people engage in, how do they hang out, what do they spend their time doing, where do they go, activities, all those sort of things. Now, again, there's heaps of resources. We don't need to make it all up or work it all out. Uh, ABS statistics, fantastic. Uh, McCrindle statistics, fantastic. 
NCLS, uh, church data, but also community social profile data. You, you can say, show me my community social profile within an 8K radius of my church. What is the makeup? And you, you'll get a wealth of information about what your region is actually like, the people you're seeking uh, to reach. Uh, real estate data. Um, but really, most of the time we can just jump up and walk around <laughs> and watch what people do and see where do they go to shop. What sort of housing do they live in? What sort of social activities? Where, how do they dress? How do they speak to one another? How, how do they... We can live inside the church so much, we forget what's really... The context is really like the people we're really uh, trying to reach. The mission purpose tries to keep us having an eye so that we're context understanding, understanding our context. But then the cash value really comes with the second principle in this area, which is culture shaping. We need to understand our context and then shape our culture so that we are as accessible to possi as possible to reach the people who actually live in our context. Now, what's culture? Well, it's a weird, nebulous concept, but it's really just, well, that's the way we do things around here. It's our beliefs, our practices, uh, the commonly held values, the things that we find important, what people eat, what people wear, how they talk, what's appropriate social behaviour, customs, worldview, all those. Culture is made up of a thousand small things that people don't necessarily speak about and are often unrecognised, but people of that culture will notice when you don't do those things. And when we're in a culture that, that um, people are, we are part of, we feel comfortable we feel at ease, but when we step into another culture that has different ways of doing things, the more different it is, the more uncomfortable we feel and out of place we feel and um, the harder to live in sync. And it actually takes a while to acclimatise uh, into another culture. Now, people experience that when they come to our churches. There is a culture shock uh, that goes on as people come in. Now, a few pieces about culture. I just want to say that every culture of the world is an expression of humanity's rebellion against God. And so every culture that you go into is really people shaking their fist against God. So it'll be filled with all sorts of acts and thoughts and uh, worldviews that are actually in rebellion against God. So as we come to our world, what we're going to find is we actually need to critique a lot of the culture that's going on around us and, and call for counterculture, a, a different way, which is the Christian way. We will find there's things in each culture, though, that resonate with the Bible because people are made in the image of God and so there will be things that people do, not because they love God, but just because they do them, but we'll think, but they're good things. You know, the way you value community life, the way you value your elders, the way you value justice and mercy. So we can affirm some things and then teach people where the roots of those things come from in the Gospel. And then there'll be some things which are fairly neutral, neither one nor the other, good nor bad. And so every church also has a culture. Now, we don't think we do, do we? Church, it's like being Australian. We don't have an accent, do we? Why do all those other weird countries have accents? We don't have a culture. Every church has a culture. Or we think, no, no, our culture is just biblical culture. <laughs> every church has a culture. What is it that shapes culture? Heard he spoke about it the other day. Poetry and plumbing. Very helpful. The, the, the wonderful, beautiful language and images we paint in people's minds as we preach and lead and MC and sing and lead growth groups. and That shapes culture because it says to people, these are the things to value. 
These are the things that are important. This is the way of life. This is the, the poetry. But can I say the plumbing is just as powerful in terms of shaping culture as the poetry is. The systems, the structures, the things that you're implementing under the surface that make things run. Example, leadership. You can sing all you want and speak all you want and paint beautiful imagery about how important it is that leadership is godly and character-driven and servant-like. But if under the ground the way you set up leadership in your church is purely pragmatic and about getting things done and there's one-upmanship and it's not about character and it's not about serving, you're going to have this mixed, muddy, dirty culture in your church where no one's really clear. But if those things are in tandem, oh, it pops, it sings. Everyone feels like, of course that's the way we do things around here because the poetry and the plumbing match. And so we need to pay attention to both. Another thing to say is we want churches that are conviction-shaped churches, to go back to the conviction-forming principle. I won't say more, but churches that the culture is shaped by conviction first and foremost. Another thing to recognise is that there's tension if we're biblically going to seek to um, pay attention to culture in our churches because we'll be simultaneously doing two things. We'll be creating counterculture... We'll be doing something very distinct and different from the world around us. We'll be aliens and strangers in the world who do all sorts of weird and crazy stuff because we want to honour God and be biblical. But at the same time, we'll be seeking to reach the culture around us by being as accessible to them as possible and putting no stumbling block in their way. So we might be all things to all men, so by all possible means we might win some. And so, so, so there's this constant tension, and so we need to keep coming with a biblical mind where must we be countercultural, and where must we be culturally accessible? And, and, and sometimes there's a real tension exactly where you're going to land. And sometimes there's unforeseen consequences in terms of the decisions we make. So we need to be very clear uh, thinking about these sort of things. Beware. Adjusting and being accessible to culture in order to reach the lost is one of the the, the places, the roots that liberalism springs from. Yeah. Liberalism often springs from, in first generation, we want to reach the lost, let's make it as easy as possible for the lost to come to us so that we might... So you cut off the hard edges, you stop saying the hard things, you stop believing the hard things, and eventually the gospel is gone. Beware. Having said that, we need a, cult, a, a culture in church that is shaped by context in order to reach the lost. Not so that we feel comfortable as Christians, not so we feel cool as Christians. You know? Man, we're the cool Christians who are like the world around. No, no, no. Not so our leaders can shape things the way according to their preferences in order to seek and save the lost and put no unnecessary barrier before them that they might hear the gospel and be saved and grow into deep discipleship. There will be necessary barriers in the gospel, but no unnecessary. That is the end goal. And, and as we bring people, save people into church who are so entwined in their culture, the end goal we want for them is to grow to such deep maturity that they no longer care much about their culture because their identity is now in Christ. I'm a Christ person, that's who I am. Not a surfer or a Central Coast person or a whatever you were before. And now they can go back into that culture or any other culture in order to reach the lost and adjust to that culture. Now that's a very profound thing. That's what missionaries are doing all the time. That's what we are to be, missionaries. One more thing before we get into the, the details of what it will mean for your church. 
when you, you can set up a church so that um, you, you're reaching one culture. You look at your region, your context, and you go, we want to reach that culture, either because it's the dominant culture, because it's a low-hanging fruit culture, we think we'll have lots of success, or for some other reason, that's the culture. And so you have one service that reaches one culture, or multiple services that reach one culture. But then you think, but we want to reach youth. So you start a youth ministry, which is for a demographic, which has its own subculture. And so then you realise, actually, what we need is... We've got this that reaches one culture, but now let's set up a ministry which has a focus to reach another culture, a focused ministry that's culturally shaped. We reach youth, we grow them up to maturity, and then we bring them into this cultural group because they're more mature and then they can handle it. Or we do the same thing with let's reach Koreans, we'll speak Korean, we'll adjust all the, the cultural norms so it's most accessible to them as possible. A focused ministry to reach Koreans, and then as they're saved and they start to mature, we bring them into the, the dominant cultural group or the main culture that we're seeking to reach as a church, and they can handle it because they've matured a little bit. It's one way forward. Another possible way forward is to go, no, what we're going to do is we're going to make this congregation focus culturally to reach this group, and this congregation focus culturally to reach this group, and this congregation culturally. You can see it's an issue. If you want to reach multiple cultural groups, how are you going to skin that cat? There's pros and cons going different ways. We don't have time to go into it, but it's something to start thinking about. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to think about your church Get in mind your church. You're going to walk through your church and experience life in your church, but you're going to do it as a non-Christian. So imagine you're a non-Christian. You're going to walk through your church and experience church. What do you notice? Let me give you a whole bunch of categories. Language. What will be the main language or languages spoken? And then, what will be the style of language spoken? Will you speak, and by speak I mean preach, lead, MC, in a relaxed way or a formal way? Will you speak coastal bogan? Will you speak Sydney private school? Will you speak rural drawl? Will you speak, you know, what will be your mode of speech predominantly from front? Uh, dress. How will you dress? Will you wear a suit? Will you wear board shorts without shoes? In some contexts, first generation, Middle Eastern context, real respect culture for leaders. To jump up in that culture dressed down is a, is a sign of real disrespect and puts a massive barrier between you and them for the cause of the gospel. Very unhelpful. In other cultures, to jump up the front dressed up says to the people of your context, I think I'm superior. I think I'm better than you and I'm actually really totally out of touch puts a massive barrier between you and the people that you're actually trying to reach. Your building. The buildings that we meet in have a huge impact upon whether they're accessible to outsiders. They do. When people walk past, they see them, what impact does it have upon them? Does it look like a concrete bunker, like a jail? Does it look like it's so old that it's falling apart? Does it feel cold and foreboding or warm and welcoming? Is it friendly, unfriendly? Is it when they look at it, there's not enough parking there? I wouldn't go to the shops if there wasn't enough parking. I'm certainly not going to try a church if there's not enough parking there. Does it look so small that it looks like a really insider's club? Oh, I'm not going in there. And it's so small that your people have look around and there's no vision for growth because there's three seats up the back. And <laughs> um, Is it that um, 
you need to move building. Rent out your building and move. Is it needed to sell your building? And It's that significant. If your building is tucked away and can't be seen by anyone, if your building is, is so um, inaccessible to those around, it might be worth doing something particularly radical. It can have that bigger impact. Uh, vibe and space inside our buildings has a huge impact. Now, everyone laughed at vibe yesterday. I don't know why vibe. I'll say vibe um, multiple times. Um, I think vibe has a, has a massive impact. The decor, the style, the artwork, the building materials that are used, the feel and flow of the spaces, the light, the heating. If, people's, if, if you sit somewhere and you're cold and it's dark, it has a massive impact upon your psyche, doesn't it? If our churches are like that, it really impacts people. Now, you, when you go to people's homes, have a feel. You think about the feel, what, what they feel like. You walk into the home and how you feel. Now, why? What have they done here? What have they done in this business, in this restaurant, in this foyer to make this space feel a certain way? Because what we can do is culturally alienate and make things feel so uncomfortable for people, it's hard for them to actually come near to the gospel. Or we can make it as easy as possible for people to walk in and think, this is semi-normal, <laughs> and these people are pretty weird, but they're reasonably normal. I reckon I could stick here and have a bit of a listen, and they're really kind, and, you know, and they stay. We can set up spaces that um, have wonderful, powerful effect, or conversely, they can scream, we are old, we are out of touch, we are cold, we are cheap. <laughs> it can be a major barrier to the gospel. Social space. Often your church is your social space, but some there, sometimes there's something connected or another space you flow into. Same sort of things as above. How does that space make people feel as they move in? The events that we run. Our church services will shape the culture of our events, but our events will shape the culture of our church services. So again, we're thinking location. Will it be on-site? Will it be off-site? Will it be in a cafe? Will it be... Which one would we choose? What will be the location, the space, the food, the music, the... How will people relate in this? Where, how will we set up chairs? Food. Massive cultural piece for heaps of cultures. In fact, every culture. Food, the quantity, the manner in which it's eaten. In many cultures, Mediterranean, Middle East, Asian cultures, food is the centrepiece of relationships. Food and lots of it. Wouldn't it be great to be from one of those cultures, just eating heaps of beautiful food? When they gather, there's heaps of food because it's about warm hospitality. It's about honour. It's about relationships. And so when people from those cultures turn up to church and you're like, oh, yeah, there's, um, there's some, some tea over there and a Tim Tam. They're like, what? These people don't care about me. These, these people don't think I'm worthy of particularly. Food can do great things to enhance our gathering together, make it feel like a family eating together, or can have a never-give impact. Social media. I won't say much here because we're going to say more tomorrow, can have a real role in shaping church culture in order to be accessible to the outsider. And church is the flagship event in culture shaping. As we've noted previously, uh, the vine growers very helpfully say church is the flagship in disciple making. Now, disciple making is going on all over church in the whole ecosystem, but it, it sets the tone of the whole and fuels and fires the whole, and particularly, particularly the preaching, but all of it. The same can be said of uh, conviction forming and confidence building and culture shaping. Church is the culture shaping piece. So if you lose it in church, 
you've pretty much lost that war everywhere. So think again. What's the style of my church gathering? What are the key components? How do they flow and fit together? What is the tone? How will the leader lead? What will be the style of music? Music has a massive impact upon the, the, the flavour of church. Um, what will be the makeup of the band? What will be the song selection? What will be the lyrics? What will be the music style? What will be the number of songs? Will it be played um, one song, stand up, sit down, or will it be played in sets? Um, what sort of uh, engagement with the song and the music will be modelled from up the front? All these things shape culture. And you've got to remember, we're all getting older, and so including the people in our bands. And so every year, they still think they're hip and cool. But <laughs> <laughs> they're not as hip and cool as they think they are, and the people who come from outside know they're not as hip and cool as they think they are. The music's fantastic here, by the way. Um, people up front who will lead the service, who will be up front, what age will they be, what cultural type, what mix of male and female, what does that communicate, how will they speak, what will they wear, welcoming shapes culture. How you welcome, will you welcome people outside the church, will you welcome people inside the church, what will be the actual words that people say when they welcome people as they uh, come in, will there be music playing, what type of music uh, will be playing, uh, will you give new people a gift when they come to church, will you use name tags, will you not use name tags, what does that say about you, powerful shapers of culture, not each one is a powerful shaper but, but together Together, they all shape culture. Advertising. When someone gets up in church and they advertise church events, they can do it in a way that makes the outsider feel totally alienated or they can do it in a way that's particularly helpful, particularly evangelistic events. You can jump up and advertise an evangelistic event in a way where you, where you say something like, um, got this awesome um, course coming up. It helps people check out who Jesus is, um, the, the, whether the Bible's true and you can um, trust it, and what would it mean to follow Jesus if you wanted to? I'd love everyone who wants to to come along and check that out. And uh, you might have some friends that you want to invite along. Now, you've just done it in a way that told all the Christians, invite your friends. But you do it, didn't do it in a way that made the outsider feel like they were excluded. You, you actually invited the outsider as well. E everyone feels welcome. Now, you could probably do that better. That was just off the top of my head. Quality. Churches need to be of a good enough quality for the visitor to feel like, I want to return. And for the insider to feel like, man, I'm so glad I brought my friend today. Or I wish I brought my, my friend today. Um, and churches, as they grow larger, quality matters more. And so you need to pay attention to that. Note, however, some cultures and subcultures really value organic and thrown together. Now, can I say what you need to do then is be really organised behind the scenes and get things sorted out and then pretend you're organic and, and thrown together because... <laughs> Things don't just happen, do they, organically. Preaching. A lot has been said about the preaching, but preaching with, with the eye to the unbeliever in a way that's not legalistic, as Tony was, was warning against, but grace-filled, filled, filled with the gospel, helps us not have this inside a holy huddle and them out there in the world. It's We all need the gospel. We all need the gospel of grace. Clarity. Clarity is something that's particularly needed for the unbeliever, particularly if you're going to preach to mature and deep in Christians, so long and deep. You need clarity. But believers need clarity as well, don't they? It helps all of us, particularly the outsider, when the preacher understands culture, uses cultural references, um, and also critiques worldview. Preachers in such a way that shows, I get your worldview. I understand the world in which you live. But let me tell you, 
how Jesus, how God reshapes that worldview through the lens of the gospel. It's a better story. It's a far more wonderful way. Very powerful. But that's what Christians need as well, isn't it? It's what Ray was saying yesterday. Anticipating and dealing with defeated beliefs, beliefs that stop people getting near the gospel. And so, as Toby was saying this morning, don't deal with them in a cursory way that cause flags to come up for people, but when you have time, deal with them well. Take the belief and show that they're, they're, they can be defeated. There is a more plausible belief system in the scriptures that shows a far better way um, dismantling their belief. It's easy for us to say and do unnecessarily alienating things in the way we set up and the way we speak and the way we run church and all the ministries around it. And can I encourage us to keep thinking, we live in, in, a, in a context that we need to understand and then we need to shape culture accordingly with both its countercultural parts but also its culturally accessible parts so that we might save as many as possible. Now we're going to hear an example of this now um, from Josh. Scott's going to jump up and we'll hear how he's applied um, th these two principles. So Josh and Sarah Allen, they planted Laneway Church about two and a half years ago. Josh is from Coffs Harbour. Uh, Sarah, his wife, is from Tamworth. Tamworth. And they planted a church in Melbourne. That's right, in Footscray. <laughs> Obvious place to plant when you Obvious from Coffs Obvious place to plant when you come from Coffs Harbour and Tamworth. Can you tell us about your context? Yeah, Footscray is in the inner west of Melbourne. You can see it on the screen geographically. Uh, it's uh, the centre of kind of the rail transport, road transport hubs. It's a multicultural place. People um, there, 40% are born overseas, 42% speaking a language other than English at home. Uh, so it's had layers of migration, but the most recent wave is tertiary uh, educated young professionals, 20 to 30 years old. I think about church culture. What, what are three things that you've done to shape the culture of Laneway to reach the context? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you three things we do so the gospel can simply get a hearing. And I'm going to pick Two of the weird ones and one that's kind of normal. Um, uh, the first thing is we want to reach a post-Christian and never-Christian uh, group of people, so from all over the place. And we want to overcome the assumption that if they go to this church, they're going to the church they already know and have rejected and the Jesus they've already heard of and rejected. So we try to do church in a way that creates a point of connection to things that are familiar so it makes it easier to walk in the door. So what did we do? Well, we named our church Laneway Church. Um, so you, a name, just calling it Laneway. What, what was wrong with Footscray Evangelical Church? <laughs> uh, well, I won't say what was wrong with it, but you know, <laughs> in Melbourne, the Laneways and the CBD are the places where people come together and it's the creative place, it's the place to discover things, eat, be together. In Footscray, the Laneways are gritty. It's where you go and you tread carefully over the syringes and you get your drug deals. Um, but they're also places of brokenness. Uh, we wanted to create a church that said, this is a place where you can come together, find something new, this is for people, this is also for broken people. Um, and that was all with an eye to the outsider. For the Christians at church, we talk about Luke 14, where Jesus tells the parable, the master sends a servant out down every road and lane to bring people into the bank. So vision for the insider, uh, op opening to the outsider as well. That's right. What, what's the second thing you did? Um, we try and be real and friendly. Uh, but isn't, like, isn't every church real and friendly? You don't tell me. <laughs> the, 
we tried to get a building from council. I want to illustrate this. Um, and it was a disused naval hall on the edge of a disused park. The council met together uh, with me and they said, you can't meet there because churches are exclusive activities. If we give you access to this disused building, it will deny the community access to the park adjacent to it by your presence. So that's the assumption that we're, we're working in. Mm. So what do we do? Well, church goes for an hour and a half. In the middle, we break. We have people turn and talk to each other. We have good food that's delicious, nutritious, sufficient, which means you've got to have more food than you can eat. Sufficient isn't enough for everyone. It's more than enough for everyone. And we structure things so it's an hour and a half together, hour and a half informal afterwards, and we invite all of our visitors to help us pack up, which is another weird thing, but gives the newcomer dignity and shows them that this is not some kind of Wizard of Oz event, like we're just normal people loving each other. It takes a stack of work to do this and actually involves them in the kind of the love and the service. And what's been the fruit of that? Well, a couple like, who was named Layla and Shoki, Iranian couple, had very little English, by involving them in the pack-up at the end, they actually felt like, we can stay here. We're not just kind of bludgers in, on this church, um, eating their food and going, but they kind of had honour by being part of things. Final thing, what, what, what's the final thing you want to well, talk about? This is the, probably the weirdest one, and we might, maybe we won't be doing this in a year. Just Can we turn off the uh, recording now? <laughs> no. Four times a year, uh, we cancel our Sunday service, go out in teams and serve in our community, then at the end of the day, we get back together for prayer, stories, encouragement. So that's co- that's, that must be costly because there must be people who show up and they don't read the memo, they don't jump on the website, they don't see. Absolutely, yep. And as a church, we only get about 50% buy-in on the best days. Why would we do something like that? Especially when we value the word ministry um, and this cancels the preaching, teaching aspect of it. Um, well, we do it because... We're tackling through this one of the biggest defeated beliefs. Not just that we want to serve in our community, we want everyone to do that, but the big defeated belief is that Christianity is evil. Like if you become a Christian, um, the gospel in our community is you need to be liberated from your oppressive Christianity that you're using to do evil things. Uh, So there's this like anti-Christian redemption movement. We just need to teach people in our church that the gospel is actually good. And one of the ways we help them to do that is to go and do something where they can love somebody actually helps them to put what they believe into practice and builds confidence that they can talk to their Christian friends and they're not peddling the evil gospel, they've got actually the good news, not the bad news. Excellent, that's really helpful and helpful to think about that. Uh, Sam's going to come up now and talk about calendar flows. G'day, I'm uh, the Red Mission Pastor, if you forget my name. One of the main things I, I think we're not good at doing at as churches is having a really kind of deliberate calendar of events across church. And often, even if we're doing this, one of the last things that we put into those calendars are the mission events or, or, or scheduling mission into that calendar box. And I want to argue that if your church is going to be on mission, then it actually needs to be the first thing that we think about when we're planning out our year. When you put mission into the calendar first, what that actually does is it begins to to shape the culture of your church over a number of years. So for us, one of the best things that we've been uh, able to do over over the years is run a, a a kids club, a big mission in January, and, and that's something that that for us, it means that the whole church begins the year on mission. There's loads and loads of people serving in that. 
And the whole church gets behind it, whether they're inviting, whether they're serving, whether they're praying for it. And we find that people actually begin to plan their holidays around uh, that mission event. The best thing about locking your dates in for particular evangelistic series that you might have throughout the year is, is that people then know when it's coming. And so they can plan for that. They can plan to hang out with their friends before that. They can organise to spend time with their various contacts in order to make that invitation, that appropriate invitation along to those evangelistic series. Second thing you need to think about is context. Uh, when you begin this process, you have to really think carefully about what your context is. What's happening in the community? What are the big events that are taking place? How do the seasons affect the mood and the feel of your region? For example, for us in Newcastle, we make a big deal of the summer period. Now, the reason we do that is because Newcastle kind of comes alive during that time of year. So on the first warm day of spring, everybody merges and everybody feels like almost all of Newcastle is on the beach and in the cafes. There's markets on almost every week, there's street feasts, outdoor cinema, everything is on during the summer period. But during winter, everyone hibernates. Everyone retreats into their home and it quietens down. So we make uh, the most of that, we make a big deal of the summer period. But for you, that might not actually work. So for example, if you're a church in Foster, I know some guys who are working in a church in Foster and, and it seems that if they put on a big summer kids event in the beginning of January, then the only people they would get along to that are your kids. Because right? you're all on holidays there during January, and so they would be the only people that they would get along to that. It's not a great time for them to be able to run a program that's designed to preach the gospel to local families. And so you need to think really carefully about your culture and your context and how that might impact your calendar. The other thing you need to think about is flow. So you don't want to just kind of start with a bang, go home on Monday and start with a bang and put lots and lots of events into your calendar. You have to have a clear plan in mind for each event and what the next step for people who might attend one of those events would be. And without a clear plan, um, you'll be really busy, but you'll essentially get nowhere. So here are, um, these, these are four types of, of, three types of events that um, we try to think about uh, and, and, and the calendar we roll out across the year, we want to reflect, um, we want these three types of events to reflect uh, the process of moving from non-Christian and unchurched to contact with Christians and church and then to deeper connections with Christians and church and then converted and on mission with us. So here's what we try and include in our calendar. The first is contact multiplication events. We, we want to multiply our contacts in the community. One of the ways you can do that is by running events or profiling events that are put on not just for your church and their particular contacts, but also for your wider community. So you're, you're hoping to catch a large group of people there. So something like carols in the park or cinema in the park or markets or any of those sorts of events. And these events are designed to catch lots and lots of people and really to kind of let the community know that your church is there in a really easy and accessible way. If you're a small church, this is probably not the place that you would start in your calendar. There are often a lot of work 
And, and, and so even if you're a larger church, you probably only have one or two of these events each year. So these events are for the community, but they have an added benefit as well. And that is that they should also be a really easy invitation for the people in your church to invite their friends along to. And perhaps that might actually be their first connection with church and then with other Christians. The second type of event we think about is what we call connection events. And these events are designed to connect your unbelieving friends to other Christians and to Christian things and Christian worldviews. These events are much smaller and they're designed to work off the back of invitations rather than kind of broad advertising. We're going to talk more about this tomorrow, but within these connection events, there actually needs to be a whole bunch of really clear steps, clear next steps for the, for the person who might be intrigued about the gospel from coming along and meeting with some other Christians and spending time with them. And so they want to actually investigate Christianity further and explore Jesus. They include things for us like uh, Christmas and Easter church, uh, Mother's Day church. We run these things called Men and Meat Nights. Uh, and, uh, and we also have some live music events in our, in our venue. The third type of event we think about is the core conversion engine. And the connection events kind of work as feeders into that core conversion engine. And so the way that we try to think about it is we try not to just kind of throw them on after a f one of those bigger contact multiplication events, but we figure that, m generally speaking, most people will come to an evangelistic series because their friend has invited them. And so this means we run our evangelistic structures following our connection events, and it gives people within our church a natural invitation to the next thing, the next step for them. So here's our calendar. Uh, I think there's another one. Yep, there we go. So here's our calendar. You can see right at the top there we've got our Wave Kids Club early on in January. Uh, if, you, if you look back at the bottom of it, we also have a carols event that we run in December as well. And those two events kind of feed into then our life series and our follow-up series and so on uh, from that point. And the thing about these events is they all have the next thing in mind. Okay? They're not just events that exist on their own, they all have the next step in mind. So Christmas, uh, sorry, Carol's has Christmas and our Wave Kids Club in mind. That's what we're hoping to get people along to next. At our Wave Kids Club, we're seeking not just to engage the kids, but also the parents. And so from Wave Kids Club, we're praying and we're inviting uh, people to actually drop into a cafe that we run out the front where we talk about the things of Jesus and we're hoping from there that they'll actually sign up to the Life Series or come along to church that Sunday. But it's slow. It's long-term work that kind of grows over years and years and years. Here's a calendar for Grace City Church. There we go. So you can see uh, for, for the Grace City Church, uh, that they ran a series in January called The Problem of God. Okay, that's in the green there. And then followed by that, they've got Mark's Gospel. And so on their Sundays, they actually had lots and lots of opportunities there where the Gospel would have been explained clearly each and every week. And so loads of opportunities for people to invite their contacts along to church in that first half of the year. Their core conversion engine is called Explore. Uh, can't see what colour that is there. That's the purple colour. 
Uh, so you've got Explore, and then you've got Explore Group 1. So that's the follow-up series. Explore is the initial series, and Explore Group 1 is the follow-up series. And so they're hoping that those events on the Sunday will actually feed into their Explore Groups. Now, the thing to realise about this is these all, all these events operate more like a funnel, and we're going to talk about this tomorrow, more like a funnel than a pipeline. I don't know if you remember uh, going to the shops as kids, then you would, you'd, you'd see one of those big funnels where you could donate some money. And you'd put a coin in the funnel, and it would keep you occupied for ages, because it would go round and round. Do people remember, remember these things? You'd go round and round and round, and then you'd stop it, and you'd pull it out, and you'd let it go again, around and around and around. <laughs> right? and, and these events kind of work more like the funnel than they do like a pipeline. And what you'll find is that people will spend years and years and years kind of floating around your contact multiplication events and your connection events before they're ready to come to church or before they're ready to come to your life series or your explore group or your Christianity Explore series or whatever it might be. And so they might spend a long time kind of circling around and around in those events, which means you have to be super deliberate about all the work behind the scenes. Behind all the structures and all these programs you run, you have to work out how are you going to keep track of all of the unbelievers who are circling this funnel at your church. You can't just throw on a bunch of events and hope that people will naturally, organically progress from one event to the other. It takes a lot of hard work behind the scenes under God to make sure that we don't leak people who are genuinely interested in the gospel. Now, the way we do it is if they've entered the funnel through a Christian friend, then we want to actually encourage and engage that Christian friend in the process of evangelism. And so we, we want to kind of call them and, and speak to them about what they think then their friend's next step might be. And so we will, we will speak to them and, and talk to them about the next thing that's coming up and whether or not they would be able to make an invitation uh, to come along to one of those events, or even coaching them to have a coffee with them and talk about where they're at with God, or even to help them to uh, resource them to be able to read the Bible one-to-one -one with that person. If not, if they've just kind of rocked up, then we pursue that person individually. Or perhaps they've made a recent contact at church, uh, we'll pursue that person through the recent contact that they've made at church. The other thing to note about the calendar is it's a year's worth of opportunities, a year, long, a year worth of opportunities. Not all of the events are times where the gospel is explained in full. We've got to think about where we are. Uh, it's essential for us to be effective in mission. You live in a region, it speaks a certain language or multiple languages, will be inhabited by certain people groups, certain uh, cultures, subcultures, certain norms, certain socioeconomic realities, and it's going to be different for all of us. And these things all need to be taken into account, which they would be if you're a missionary going somewhere. And they almost always are if you're a church planter going somewhere. But often if you're an existing church, you forget to be like the missionary or the church planter and think about what is this context in which I'm conducting my ministry 
is the ministry actually effectively reaching the people of the context here? And the thing is, we might have thought about that once in, upon a time, but things move on, culture moves on, society moves on, our area changes over time. Uh, immigration, gentrification, people from different areas moving, cultural norms change. This is, our society's way of thinking is vastly different than it was even 10 years ago. And so as churches, we need to stay abreast of these changes and to adjust accordingly. Again, as with each of the principles, the mission dimensional purpose of, of church life can, can keep speaking into these things, keep watching these things and keep making sure that we're not losing track. There's two contexts. One is the broader context that we need to pay attention to. Uh, what is the broader context in which all our churches actually exist, uh, in our country, in our part of the world? Some things to consider. Are we Eastern in thought? Are we Western in thought? What is our cultural tradition? What does it mean living as an Australian for how we think, for the worldview that we hold, for the, the, the values that are dear to our people? Uh, what are their aspirations? What are their goals? What does it mean to be a member of the online community in our part of the world? Thought trends, social media trends and moral values, uh, social media sentiment, YouTube messaging, movie streaming trends. I think we could look back over the last five years of Netflix and in 10 years and, and we will go, it has radically transformed the way our society thinks, Netflix. Uh, things are changing rapidly all the time and we need to see it and understand it and be abreast of it. Understanding the broader context. But even more, we also need to understand the narrow context. And understand the broader context, one of the great things is there's lots of great commentators speaking about these things. Experts in the field who are analysing cultural trends. Christians who have great insight into these things. We don't need to work it out all themselves. We can leverage off what others are doing and make use of that. But narrower is what's your particular context? Firstly, what, what is the area or region that you are seeking to reach with the gospel? And it's going to be different size for all of us. If you're in an urban context, um, densely packed and populated, it's going to be a much smaller region that you're trying to reach than if you're a suburban context or a regional context. If you're in a country context, much larger. If you're in an outback context, it's a huge area that you're trying to reach. And then you look at your area and you try to work out, well, what are the distinctives of this particular region or area? Demographics. What's the age? What's the race? What's the religion breakup? Socioeconomic? Education? What does it mean for this particular context for how people think? how people interact, what they do for work, what they do with their free time, uh, what social community leisure activities do people engage in, how do they hang out, what do they spend their time doing, where do they go, activities, all those sort of things. Now, there's, again, there's heaps of resources. We don't need to make it all up or work it all out. Uh, ABS statistics, fantastic. Uh, McCrindle statistics, fantastic. NCLS, uh, church data, but also community social profile data. You, you can say, show me my community social profile within an 8K radius of my church. What is the makeup? And you, you'll get a wealth of information about what your region is actually like, the people you're seeking uh, to reach. Uh, real estate data. Um, but really, most of the time we can just jump up and walk around <laughs> and watch what people do and see where do they go to shop? What sort of housing do they live in? What sort of social activities? Where, how do they dress? How do they speak to one another? How, how do they, 
We can live inside the church so much, we forget what's really the context is really like, the people we're really uh, trying to reach. The mission purpose tries to keep us having an eye so that we're context understanding, understanding our context. But then the cash value really comes with the second principle in this area, which is culture shaping. We need to understand our context and then shape our culture so that we're as accessible to poss as possible to reach the people who actually live in our context. Now, what's culture? Well, it's a weird, nebulous concept, but it's really just, well, that's the way we do things around here. That's our beliefs, our practices, uh, the commonly held values, the things that we find important, what people eat, what people wear, how they talk, what's appropriate social behaviour, customs, worldview, all those. Culture is made up of a thousand small things that people don't necessarily speak about and are often unrecognised, but people of that culture will notice when you don't do those things. And when we're in a culture that, that um, people are, we are part of, we feel comfortable we feel at ease, but when we step into another culture that has different ways of doing things, the more different it is, the more uncomfortable we feel and out of place we feel and um, the harder to live in sync. And it actually takes a while to acclimatise uh, into another culture. Now, people experience that when they come to our churches. There is a culture shock uh, that goes on as people come in. Now, a few pieces about culture. I just want to say that every culture of the world is an expression of humanity's rebellion against God. And so every culture that you go into is really people shaking their fist against God. So it'll be filled with all sorts of acts and thoughts and uh, worldviews that are actually in rebellion against God. So as we come to our world, what we're going to find is we actually need to critique a lot of the culture that's going on around us and, and call for counterculture, a, a different way, which is the Christian way. We will find there's things in each culture, though, that resonate with the Bible because people are made in the image of God and so there will be things that people do, not because they love God, but just because they do them, but we'll think, but they're good things. You know, the way you value community life, the way you value your elders, the way you value justice and mercy. So we can affirm some things and then teach people where the roots of those things come from in the Gospel. And then there'll be some things which are fairly neutral, neither one nor the other, good nor bad. And so every church also has a culture. Now, we don't think we do, do we? Church, it's like being Australian. We don't have an accent, do we? Why do all those other weird countries have accents? We don't have a culture. Every church has a culture. Or we think, no, no, our culture is just biblical culture. <laughs> every church has a culture. What is it that shapes culture? Heard he spoke about it the other day. Poetry and plumbing. Very helpful. The, the, the wonderful, beautiful language and images we paint in people's minds as we preach and lead and MC and sing and lead growth groups. and That shapes culture because it says to people, these are the things to value. These are the things that are important. This is the way of life. This is the, the poetry. But can I say the plumbing is just as powerful in terms of shaping culture as the poetry is. The systems, the structures, the things that you're implementing under the surface that make things run. Example, leadership. You can sing all you want and speak all you want and paint beautiful imagery about how important it is that leadership is godly and character-driven and servant-like. But if under the ground the way you set up leader in your leadership in your church is purely pragmatic 
and about getting things done and there's one-upmanship and it's not about character and it's not about serving, you're going to have this mixed, muddy, dirty culture in your church where no one's really clear. But if those things are in tandem, oh, pops, it sings. Everyone feels like, of course that's the way we do things around here because the poetry and the plumbing match. And so we need to pay attention to both. Another thing to say is we want churches that are conviction-shaped churches, to go back to the conviction-forming principle. I won't say more, but churches that the culture is shaped by conviction first and foremost. Another thing to recognise is that there's tension if we're biblically going to seek to um, pay attention to culture in our churches because we'll be simultaneously doing two things. We'll be creating counterculture... We'll be doing something very distinct and different from the world around us. We'll be aliens and strangers in the world who do all sorts of weird and crazy stuff because we want to honour God and be biblical. But at the same time, we'll be seeking to reach the culture around us by being as accessible to them as possible and putting no stumbling block in their way. So we might be all things to all men, so by all possible means we might win some. And so, so, so there's this constant tension, and so we need to keep coming with a biblical mind where must we be countercultural, and where must we be culturally accessible? And, and, and sometimes there's a real tension exactly where you're going to land. And sometimes there's unforeseen consequences in terms of the decisions we make. So we need to be very clear uh, thinking about these sort of things. Beware. Adjusting and being accessible to culture in order to reach the lost is one of the the, the places, the roots that liberalism springs from. Yeah. Liberalism often springs from, in first generation, we want to reach the lost, let's make it as easy as possible for the lost to come to us so that we might... So you cut off the hard edges, you stop saying the hard things, you stop believing the hard things, and eventually the gospel is gone. Beware. Having said that, we need a, cult, a, a culture in church that is shaped by context in order to reach the lost. Not so that we feel comfortable as Christians, not so we feel cool as Christians. You know? Man, we're the cool Christians who are like the world around. No, no, no. Not so our leaders can shape things the way according to their preferences in order to seek and save the lost and put no unnecessary barrier before them that they might hear the gospel and be saved and grow into deep discipleship. There will be necessary barriers in the gospel, but no unnecessary. That is the end goal. And, and as we bring people, save people into church who are so entwined in their culture, the end goal we want for them is to grow to such deep maturity that they no longer care much about their culture because their identity is now in Christ. I'm a Christ person, that's who I am. Not a surfer or a Central Coast person or a whatever you were before. And now they can go back into that culture or any other culture in order to reach the lost and adjust to that culture. Now that's a very profound thing. That's what missionaries are doing all the time. That's what we are to be, missionaries. One more thing before we get into the, the details of what it will mean for your church. When you, you can set up a church so that um, you, you're reaching one culture. You look at your region, your context, and you go, we want to reach that culture, either because it's the dominant culture, because it's a low-hanging fruit culture, we think we'll have lots of success, or for some other reason, that's the culture. And so you have one service that reaches one culture, or multiple services that reach one culture. But then you think, but we want to reach youth. So you start a youth ministry, which is for a demographic, which has its own subculture. And so then you realise, actually, what we need is 
We've got this that reaches one culture, but now let's set up a ministry which has a focus to reach another culture, a focused ministry that's culturally shaped. We reach youth, we grow them up to maturity, and then we bring them into this cultural group because they're more mature and then they can handle it. Or we do the same thing with let's reach Koreans, we'll speak Korean, we'll adjust all the the cultural norms so it's most accessible to them as possible, a focused ministry to reach Koreans, and then as they're saved and they start to mature, we bring them into the, the dominant cultural group or the main culture that we're seeking to reach as a church, and they can handle it because they've matured a little bit. It's one way forward. Another possible way forward is to go, no, what we're going to do is we're going to make this congregation focus culturally to reach this group, and this congregation focus culturally to reach this group, and this congregation culturally. You can see it's an issue. If you want to reach multiple cultural groups, how are you going to skin that cat? There's pros and cons going different ways. We don't have time to go into it, but it's something to start thinking about. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to think about your church Get in mind your church. You're going to walk through your church and experience life in your church, but you're going to do it as a non-Christian. So imagine you're a non-Christian. You're going to walk through your church and experience church. What do you notice? Let me give you a whole bunch of categories. Language. What will be the main language or languages spoken? And then, what will be the style of language spoken? Will you speak, and by speak I mean preach, lead, MC, in a relaxed way or a formal way? Will you speak coastal bogan? Will you speak Sydney private school? Will you speak rural drawl? Will you speak, you know, what will be your mode of speech predominantly from front? Uh, dress. How will you dress? Will you wear a suit? Will you wear board shorts without shoes? In some contexts, first generation, Middle Eastern context, real respect culture for leaders. To jump up in that culture dressed down is a, is a sign of real disrespect and puts a massive barrier between you and them for the cause of the gospel. Very unhelpful. In other cultures, to jump up the front dressed up says to the people of your context, I think I'm superior. I think I'm better than you and I'm actually really totally out of touch puts a massive barrier between you and the people that you're actually trying to reach. Your building. The buildings that we meet in have a huge impact upon whether they're accessible to outsiders. They do. When people walk past, they see them, what impact does it have upon them? Does it look like a concrete bunker, like a jail? Does it look like it's so old that it's falling apart? Does it feel cold and foreboding or warm and welcoming? Is it friendly, unfriendly? Is it when they look at it, there's not enough parking there. I wouldn't go to the shops if there wasn't enough parking. I'm certainly not going to try a church if there's not enough parking there. Does it look so small that it looks like a really insider's club? Oh, I'm not going in there. And it's so small that your people have look around and there's no vision for growth because there's three seats up the back. And <laughs> um, Is it that um, you need to move building? Rent out your building and move? Is it need to sell your building? And It's that significant. If your building is tucked away and can't be seen by anyone, if your building is, is so um, inaccessible to those around, it might be worth doing something particularly radical. It can have that bigger impact. Uh, vibe and space inside our buildings has a huge impact. Now, everyone laughed at vibe yesterday. I don't know why vibe. I'll say vibe um, multiple times. Um, I think vibe has a, has a massive impact. 
the decor, the style, the artwork, the building materials that are used, the feel and flow of the spaces, the light, the heating. If, people's, if, if you sit somewhere and you're cold and it's dark, it has a massive impact upon your psyche, doesn't it? If our churches are like that, it really impacts people. Now, you, when you go to people's homes, have a feel... You think about the fear, what, what they feel like. You walk into the home and how you feel. Now, why? What have they done here? What have they done in this business, in this restaurant, in this foyer to make this space feel a certain way? Because what we can do is culturally alienate and make things feel so uncomfortable for people, it's hard for them to actually come near to the gospel. Or we can make it as easy as possible for people to walk in and think, this is semi-normal, <laughs> and these people are pretty weird, but they're reasonably normal. I reckon I could stick here and have a bit of a listen, and they're really kind, and, yeah, and they stay. We can set up spaces that um, have wonderful, powerful effect, or conversely, they can scream, we are old, we are out of touch, we are cold, we are cheap. <laughs> it can be a major barrier to the gospel. Social space. Often your church is your social space, but sometimes there's something connected or another space you flow into. Same sort of things as above. How does that space make people feel as they move in? The events that we run. Our church services will shape the culture of our events, but our events will shape the culture of our church services. So again, we're thinking location. Will it be on-site? Will it be off-site? Will it be in a cafe? Will it be... Which one would we choose? What will be the location, the space, the food, the music, the... How will people relate in this? Where, how will we set up chairs? Food. Massive cultural piece for heaps of cultures. In fact, every culture. Food, the quantity, the manner in which it's eaten. In many cultures, Mediterranean, Middle East, Asian cultures, food is the centrepiece of relationships. Food and lots of it. Wouldn't it be great to be from one of those cultures just eating heaps of beautiful food? When they gather, there's heaps of food because it's about warm hospitality. It's about honour. It's about relationships. And so when people from those cultures turn up to church and you're like, oh, yeah, there's, um, there's some, some tea over there and a Tim Tam. They're like, what? These people don't care about me. These, these people don't think I'm worthy of particularly... Food can do great things to enhance our gathering together, make it feel like a family eating together, or can have a never-give impact. Social media. I won't say much here because we're going to say more tomorrow, can have a real role in shaping church culture in order to be accessible to the outsider. And church is the flagship event in culture shaping. As we've noted previously, uh, the vine growers very helpfully say church is the flagship in disciple making. Now, disciple making is going on all over church in the whole ecosystem, but it, it sets the tone of the whole and fuels and fires the whole, and particularly, particularly the preaching, but all of it. The same can be said of uh, conviction forming and confidence building and culture shaping. Church is the culture shaping piece. So if you lose it in church, you've pretty much lost that war e everywhere. So think again. What's the style of my church gathering? What are the key components? How do they flow and fit together? What is the tone? How will the leader lead? What will be the style of music? Music has a massive impact upon the, the, the flavour of church. Um, what will be the makeup of the band? 
What will be the song selection? What will be the lyrics? What will be the music style? What will be the number of songs? Will it be played um, one song, stand up, sit down, or will it be played in sets? Um, what sort of uh, engagement with the song and the music will be modelled from up the front? All these things shape culture. And you've got to remember, we're all getting older, and so including the people in our bands. And so every year, they still think they're hip and cool. But <laughs> <laughs> they're not as hip and cool as they think they are, and the people who come from outside know they're not as hip and cool as they think they are. The music's fantastic here, by the way. Um, people up front, who will lead the service? Who will be up front? What age will they be? What cultural type? What mix of male and female? What does that communicate? How will they speak? What will they wear? Welcoming shapes culture. How you welcome? Will you welcome people outside the church? Will you welcome people inside the church? What will be the actual words that people say when they welcome people as they uh, come in? Will there be music playing? What type of music uh, will be playing? Uh, will you give new people a gift when they come to church? Will you use name tags? Will you not use name tags? What does that say about you? Powerful shapers of culture. Not each one is a powerful shaper, but, but together. Together, they all shape culture. Advertising. When someone gets up in church and they advertise church events, they can do it in a way that makes the outsider feel totally alienated or they can do it in a way that's particularly helpful, particularly evangelistic events. You can jump up and advertise an evangelistic event in a way where you, where you say something like, um, got this awesome um, course coming up. It helps people check out who Jesus is, um, the, the, whether the Bible's true and you can um, trust it, and what would it mean to follow Jesus if you wanted to? I love everyone who wants to to come along and check that out and uh, you might have some friends that you want to invite along. Now you've just done it in a way that told all the Christians invite your friends but you do it, didn't do it in a way that made the outsider feel like they were excluded. You, you actually invited the outsider as well. E everyone feels welcome. Now you could probably do that better. That was just off the top of my head. Quality. Churches need to be of a good enough quality for the visitor to feel like I want to return and for the insider to feel like, man, I'm so glad I brought my friend today, or I wish I brought my, my friend today. Um, and churches, as they grow larger, quality matters more. And so you need to pay attention to that. Note, however, some cultures and subcultures really value organic and thrown together. Now, can I say what you need to do then is be really organised behind the scenes and get things sorted out and then pretend you're organic and, and thrown <laughs> together. Because... Things don't just happen, do they, organically. Preaching. A lot has been said about the preaching, but preaching with, with the eye to the unbeliever in a way that's not legalistic, as Tony was, was warning against, but grace-filled, filled, filled with the gospel, helps us not have this inside a holy huddle and them out there in the world. It's We all need the gospel. We all need the gospel of grace. Clarity. Clarity is something that's particularly needed for the unbeliever, particularly if you're going to preach to mature and deep in Christians, so long and deep. You need clarity. But believers need clarity as well, don't they? It helps all of us, particularly the outsider, when the preacher understands culture, uses cultural references, um, and also critiques worldview. Preachers in such a way that shows, I get your worldview. I understand the world in which you live. But let me tell you, how Jesus, how God reshapes that worldview through the lens of the gospel. It's a better story. It's a far more wonderful way. Very powerful. But that's what Christians need as well, isn't it? It's what Ray was saying yesterday. Anticipating and dealing with defeated beliefs, beliefs that stop people getting near the gospel. And so, as Toby was saying this morning, 
Don't deal with them in a cursory way that caused flags to come up for people, but when you have time, deal with them well. Take the belief and show that they're, they're, they can be defeated. There is a more plausible belief system in the scriptures that shows a far better way um, dismantling their belief. It's easy for us to say and do unnecessarily alienating things in the way we set up and the way we speak and the way we run church and all the ministries around it. And can I encourage us to keep thinking, we live in, in, a, in a context that we need to understand and then we need to shape culture accordingly with both its countercultural parts but also its culturally accessible parts so that we might save as many as possible. Now we're going to hear an example of this now um, from Josh. Scott's going to jump up and we'll hear how he's applied um, th these two principles. So Josh and Sarah Allen, they planted Laneway Church about two and a half years ago. Josh is from Coffs Harbour. Uh, Sarah, his wife, is from Tamworth. Tamworth. And they planted a church in Melbourne. That's right, in Footscray. Obvious place to plant when you come from Coffs Harbour. Obvious place to plant when you come from Coffs Harbour and Tamworth. Can you tell us about your context? Yeah, Footscray is in the inner west of Melbourne. You can see it on the screen geographically. Uh, it's uh, the centre of kind of the rail transport, road transport hubs. It's a multicultural place, people um, there, 40% are born overseas, 42% speaking a language other than English at home. Uh, so it's had layers of migration, but the most recent wave is tertiary uh, educated young professionals, 20 to 30 years old. I think about church culture, what, what are three things that you've done to shape the culture of Laneway to reach the context? Yeah, well I'll tell you three things we do so the gospel can simply get a hearing, and I'm going to pick two of the weird ones and one that's kind of normal. Um, uh, the first thing is we want to reach a post-Christian and never-Christian uh, group of people, so from all over the place. And we want to overcome the assumption that if they go to this church, they're going to the church they already know and have rejected and the Jesus they've already heard of and rejected. So we try to do church in a way that creates a point of connection to things that are familiar so it makes it easier to walk in the door. So what did we do? Well, we named our church Laneway Church. Um, so you, a name, just calling it Laneway. What, what was wrong with Footscray Evangelical Church? <laughs> um, well, I won't say what was wrong with it, but in, a, <laughs> in Melbourne, the Laneways and the CBD are the places where people come together and it's the creative place, it's the place to discover things, eat, be together. In Footscray, the Laneways are gritty. It's where you go and you tread carefully over the syringes and you get your drug deals. Um, but they're also places of brokenness. Uh, we wanted to create a church that said, this is a place where you can come together, find something new, this is for people, this is also for broken people. Um, and that was all with an eye to the outsider. For the Christians at church, we talk about Luke 14, where Jesus tells the parable, the master sends a servant out down every road and lane to bring people into the banquet. So vision for the insider, uh, op opening to the outsider as well. That's right. What, what's the second thing you did? Um, we try and be real and friendly. Uh, but isn't, like, isn't every church real and friendly? You don't tell me. <laughs> <laughs> the, we tried to get a building from council. I want to illustrate this. Um, and it was a disused naval hall on the edge of a disused park. The council met together uh, with me and they said, you can't meet there because churches are exclusive activities. If we give you access to this disused building, it will deny the community access to the park adjacent to it. By your presence. So that's the assumption that we're, we're working in. Mm. So what do we do? Well, church goes for an hour and a half. In the middle, we break. 
We have people turn and talk to each other. We have good food that's delicious, nutritious, sufficient, which means you've got to have more food than you can eat. Sufficient isn't enough for everyone. It's more than enough for everyone. And we structure things so it's an hour and a half together, hour and a half informal afterwards, and we invite all of our visitors to help us pack up, which is another weird thing, but gives the newcomer dignity and shows them that this is not some kind of Wizard of Oz event, like we're just normal people loving each other. It takes a stack of work to do this and actually involves them in the kind of the love and the service. And, and, and what's the been the fruit of that? Well, a couple like who was named Layla and Shoki, Iranian couple, had very little English. By involving them in the pack-up at the end, they actually felt like we can stay here. We're not just kind of bludgers in, on this church, um, eating their food and going, but they kind of had honour by being part of things. Final thing, what, what, what's the final thing you want well, to talk about? This is the, probably the weirdest one, and we might, maybe we won't be doing this in a year. Just Can we turn off the uh, recording now? <laughs> no. Four times a year, uh, we cancel our Sunday service, go out in teams and serve in our community. Then at the end of the day, we get back together for prayer, stories, encouragement. So that's co- that's, that must be costly, because there must be people who show up and they don't read the memo, they don't jump on the website, they don't see... Absolutely, yep. And as a church, we only get about 50% buy-in on the best days. Why would we do something like that? Especially when we value the word ministry, um, and this t- cancels the preaching, teaching aspect of it. Um, well, we do it because... We're tackling through this one of the biggest defeated beliefs. Not just that we want to serve in our community, we want everyone to do that, but the big defeated belief is that Christianity is evil. Like if you become a Christian, um, the gospel in our community is you need to be liberated from your oppressive Christianity that you're using to do evil things. Uh, So there's this like anti-Christian redemption movement. We just need to teach people in our church that the gospel is actually good. And one of the ways we help them to do that is to go and do something where they can love somebody actually helps them to put what they believe into practice and builds confidence that they can talk to their Christian friends and they're not peddling the evil gospel, they've got actually the good news, not the bad news. Excellent, that's really helpful and helpful to think about that. Uh, Sam's going to come up now and talk about calendar flows. G'day, I'm uh, the Red Mission Pastor, if you forget my name. One of the main things I, I think we're not good at doing that as churches is having a really kind of deliberate calendar of events across church. And often, even if we're doing this, one of the last things that we put into those calendars are the mission events or, or, or scheduling mission into that calendar box. And I want to argue that if your church is going to be on mission, then it actually needs to be the first thing that we think about when we're planning out our year. When you put mission into the calendar first, what that actually does is it begins, to, it begins to shape the culture of your church over a number of years. So for us, one of the best things that we've been uh, able to do over, over the years is run a, a, kids, a kids club, a big mission in January. And, and that's something that, that for us, it means that the whole church begins the year on mission. There's loads and loads of people serving in that, and the whole church gets behind it, whether they're inviting, whether they're serving, whether they're praying for it, and we find that people actually begin to plan their holidays around uh, that mission event. The best thing about locking your dates in for particular evangelistic series that you might have throughout the year is, is that people then know when it's coming. 
And so they can plan for that. They can plan to hang out with their friends before that. They can organise to spend time with their various contacts in order to make that invitation, that appropriate invitation along to those evangelistic series. Second thing you need to think about is context. Uh, when you begin this process, you have to really think carefully about what your context is. What's happening in the community? What are the big events that are taking place? How do the seasons affect the mood and the feel of your region? For example, for us in Newcastle, we make a big deal of the summer period. Now, the reason we do that is because Newcastle kind of comes alive during that time of year. So on the first warm day of spring, everybody merges and everybody feels like almost all of Newcastle is on the beach and in the cafes. There's markets on almost every week, there's street feasts, outdoor cinema, everything is on during the summer period. But during winter, everyone hibernates. Everyone retreats into their home and it quietens down. So we make uh, the most of that, we make a big deal of the summer period. But for you, that might not actually work. So for example, if you're a church in Foster, I know some guys who are working in a church in Foster, and, and it seems that if they put on a big summer kids event in the beginning of January, then the only people they would get along to that are your kids. Because right? you're all on holidays there during January, and so they would be the only people that they would get along to that. It's not a great time for them to be able to run a program that's designed to preach the gospel to local families. And so you need to think really carefully about your culture and your context and how that might impact your calendar. The other thing you need to think about is flow. So you don't want to just kind of start with a bang, go home on Monday and start with a bang and put lots and lots of events into your calendar. You have to have a clear plan in mind for each event and what the next step for people who might attend one of those events would be. And without a clear plan, um, you'll be really busy, but you'll essentially get nowhere. So here are, um, these, these are four types of, of, three types of events that um, we try to think about uh, and, and, and the calendar we roll out across the year, we want to reflect um, we want these three types of events to reflect uh, the process of moving from non-Christian and unchurched to contact with Christians and church and then to deeper connections with Christians and church and then converted and on mission with us. So here's what we try and include in our calendar. The first is contact multiplication events. We, we want to multiply our contacts in the community. One of the ways you can do that is by running events or profiling events that are put on not just for your church and their particular contacts, but also for your wider community. So you're, you're hoping to catch a large group of people there. So something like carols in the park or cinema in the park or markets or any of those sorts of events. And these events are designed to catch lots and lots of people and really to kind of let the community know that your church is there in a really easy and accessible way. If you're a small church, this is probably not the place that you would start in your calendar. There are often a lot of work, and, and, and so even if you're a larger church, you probably only have one or two of these events each year. So these events are for the community, but they have an added benefit as well. 
And that is that they should also be a really easy invitation for the people in your church to invite their friends along to. And perhaps that might actually be their first connection with church and then with other Christians. The second type of event we think about is what we call connection events. And these events are designed to connect your unbelieving friends to other Christians and to Christian things and Christian worldviews. These events are much smaller and they're designed to work off the back of invitations rather than kind of broad advertising. We're going to talk more about this tomorrow, but within these connection events, there actually needs to be a whole bunch of really clear steps, clear next steps for the, for the person who might be intrigued about the gospel from coming along and meeting with some other Christians and spending time with them. And so they want to actually investigate Christianity further and explore Jesus. They include things for us like uh, Christmas and Easter church, uh, Mother's Day church. We run these things called Men and Meat Nights. Uh, and, uh, and we also have some live music events in our, in our venue. The third type of event we think about is the core conversion engine. And the connection events kind of work as feeders into that core conversion engine. And so the way that we try to think about it is we try not to just kind of throw them on after a f one of those bigger contact multiplication events, but we figure that, m generally speaking, most people will come to an evangelistic series because their friend has invited them. And so this means we run our evangelistic structures following our connection events, and it gives people within our church a natural invitation to the next thing, the next step for them. So here's our calendar. Uh, I think there's another one. Yep, there we go. So here's our calendar. You can see right at the top there we've got our Wave Kids Club early on in January. Uh, if, you, if you look back at the bottom of it, we also have a carols event that we run in December as well. And those two events kind of feed into then our life series and our follow-up series and so on uh, from that point. And the thing about these events is they all have the next thing in mind. Okay? They're not just events that exist on their own, they all have the next step in mind. So Christmas, uh, sorry, Carol's has Christmas and our Wave Kids Club in mind. That's what we're hoping to get people along to next. At our Wave Kids Club, we're seeking not just to engage the kids, but also the parents. And so from Wave Kids Club, we're praying and we're inviting uh, people to actually drop into a cafe that we run out the front where we talk about the things of Jesus and we're hoping from there that they'll actually sign up to the Life Series or come along to church that Sunday. But it's slow. It's long-term work that kind of grows over years and years and years. Here's a calendar for Grace City Church. There we go. So you can see uh, for, for the Grace City Church, uh, that they ran a series in January called The Problem of God. Okay, that's in the green there. And then followed by that, they've got Mark's Gospel. And so on their Sundays, they actually had lots and lots of opportunities there where the Gospel would have been explained clearly each and every week. And so loads of opportunities for people to invite their contacts along to church in that first half of the year. Their core conversion engine is called Explore. Uh, can't see what colour that is there. It's the purple colour. Uh, so you've got Explore, and then you've got Explore Group 1. So that's the follow-up series. Explore is the initial series, and Explore Group 1 is the follow-up series. And so they're hoping that those events on the Sunday will actually feed into their Explore Groups. 
Now, the thing to realise about this is these are all, all these events operate more like a funnel, and we're going to talk about this tomorrow, more like a funnel than a pipeline. I don't know if you remember uh, going to the shops as kids, then you would, you'd, you'd see one of those big funnels where you could donate some money, and you'd put a coin in the funnel, and it would keep you occupied for ages, because it would go round and round. Do people remember, remember these things? You'd go round and round and round, and then you'd stop it, and you'd pull it out, and you'd let it go again, around and around and around. <laughs> right? And these events kind of work more like the funnel than they do like a pipeline. And what you'll find is that people will spend years and years and years kind of floating around your contact multiplication events and your connection events before they're ready to come to church or before they're ready to come to your life series or your explore group or your Christianity Explore series or whatever it might be. And so they might spend a long time kind of circling around and around in those events, which means you have to be super deliberate about all the work behind the scenes. Behind all the structures and all these programs you run, you have to work out how are you going to keep track of all of the unbelievers who are circling this funnel at your church. You can't just throw on a bunch of events and hope that people will naturally, organically progress from one event to the other takes a lot of hard work behind the scenes under God to make sure that we don't leak people who are genuinely interested in the gospel. Now the way we do it is if they've entered the funnel through a Christian friend, then we want to actually encourage and engage that Christian friend in the process of evangelism. And so we, we want to kind of call them and, and speak to them about what they think then their friend's next step might be. And so we will We'll speak to them and, and talk to them about the next thing that's coming up and whether or not they would be able to make an invitation uh, to come along to one of those events or even coaching them to have a coffee with them and talk about where they're at with God or even to help them to uh, resource them to be able to read the Bible one-to-one -one with that person. If not, if they've just kind of rocked up, then we pursue that person individually. Or perhaps they've made a recent contact at church uh, we'll pursue that person through the recent contact that they've made at church. The other thing to note about the calendar is it's a year's worth of opportunities, a year, long wor a, a year worth of opportunities. Not all of the events are times where the gospel is explained in full. But we figure evangelism is a process. It takes time. And there are many, many steps that people will need to take before they reach the... Uh, the point of conversion under God. Here's what we're praying that these events will provide for God's people. We're praying that all of these events will actually create space and opportunities for bold conversations about the things of life and Jesus. We want to create space in our church's calendar year for that slow process of evangelism to take place. We've just got time for one question, so I'm, I'm going to ask uh, just Graham to come, just Graham come up. Sorry, Sam. I didn't get to communicate that while you were talking. Um, I think this is a really good question. Yet another young, hip, trendy male church planner. Sorry, not my context. Can I encourage you to, to be patient? 
Uh, we, we wanted to have three examples, but we've got a lot to do. That's why we've got workshops this afternoon. Workshops are where you're going to be able to drill down deep. The reason I asked Josh to come up, oh, he's a ranger, like, so he's already hard against it. <laughs> but um, but four, four years ago, he didn't have a beard and he didn't regularly get a haircut. He regularly gets a haircut and he grew a beard because he was intentional about reaching people in Melbourne. His clothes were different because people in Melbourne, they value clothes, they value food. So he was up here as an example of someone who was intentional. I can point to Chris Eakins. Chris Eakins is not a pitcher, but he's really intentional about reaching Foster. <laughs> uh, Rod Bailey, he's also not a pitcher, he's also not hipster. He's in a Baptist church that has a great mission intentionality. They recognised they had a problem a year ago. They came to this conference and they thought about how they might change. They asked for help. In this room, we've got loads of people who have great stories of change. So can I encourage you, lunch times, after workshops, with your teams, talk to each other. Now what belies this question is, is, is something that's really important. I'm going to get Graham to talk about it. Change, it's hard work. What you've talked about in terms of shaping culture, how would you go about shaping and changing the culture of, of a church that is not welcoming, that it's not intentional, that has got a you know, rusted, buried-on, 100-year culture? How do you do that? You just wanted to answer the question, really, didn't you, Scott? Um, I am sympathetic. It, it, it is hard. This is hard work we're part of, um, and this is all about change management. And so actually helping people move through change is a particularly difficult thing uh, for all of us to be engaged in and to get good at, and that's one of the things REACH will help us do. Um, but having said that, I, I think some of the key things that we'd focus on first is really that working with your people to form conviction. It, it's the mission heat thing that really is the first, working with senior leadership, dripping it down through the hole, working on the preaching and, and then slowly starting to build culture. A few things here and there around the service, a few things here and there with food. and Cele Celebrating the wins. Celebrate the wins so that um, people see like, yeah, we, we're getting somewhere. Look, more people are coming more um, and, and then it, it builds momentum over time. But it's, it really is a um, three, four-year sort of pro pro project. We, we, um, we're, yeah. we're not going to solve it in one conference and that's partly while we're gathering here and we want to keep gathering regularly, we want to increase the gathering as well so that over time we can get better at this together and, and each year just start adding, adding to that. And so I want to do, uh, I want to do one thing uh, now with us. Uh, we've got some time. One of the things we do in the consulting process is, is we start with, uh, it's a simple, simple tool. Where are you now? Where do you want to be? How are you going to get there? And so I want us in our teams, and if you're not in a team, maybe grab someone that you've met for the first time. I want you to look, um, pull out your sheets, and people are going to be handing around calendars as, as well. I want you to sit and assess, you know, face reality. Where are you now? Uh, Sam's just explained the calendar flows. Look at your current calendar. What are you currently doing? And start filling out that, uh, filling out that calendar. Have a chat and start assessing where you are now.